Welcome to Dairy Intelligent, a podcast by VES Artex. Together we will meet dairy industry intellects and passionate dairy producers to discuss all things cows and connected technologies. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of VES Artex's podcast, Dairy Intelligent. I'm your host, Annie, and today I'm joined by Christy Campbell of D. Laval. So today we're going to discuss how historically, when looking at milk quality, we focused in the front of the barn to make improvements. While that area is important, significant efforts should be made in the back of the barn as well. So again, thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. Um, to start off our conversation, can you please introduce yourself? Thank you, Annie, for having me here. Um, my name is Christy Campbell, and I am the manager for D. Laval's Dairy Advisory Team for North America. Like many people in our business, I you know, grew up on a dairy farm many years ago. And when I graduated from high school, wasn't quite sure what direction to take. And almost through a series of stumbling events, went from you know a bachelor's in, in ag education and extension work into animal science and then back into dairy science. Um, graduating with a master's in dairy nutrition, realizing I didn't really want to be a nutritionist um, after I had gone through that process. But the, I stumbled into a career path uh, at the University of Tennessee as a dairy extension specialist and had the privilege really to work with one of the um, foremost mastitis researchers in the world, uh, Dr. Steve Oliver. And together, we took the land-grant philosophy of, you know, research, teaching, and extension, um, and really put life into that. So we would do research on farm and bring it back into the lab to investigate, then take our findings back out to the farm. And really focusing on, you know, microbiology of utter health and of bulk tank milk quality. That was where we started. That in itself grew into a large statewide initiative in the state of Tennessee, focusing on milk quality. That grew into a, a southeastern U.S. Uh, project with other universities. And, and throughout that process, I uh, stumbled into a career path change to where I left the university and went into the industry. And in the industry, worked for a company that was based in Canada. I was based in the U.S., however, where we were using time temperature recording devices that monitored cooling and cleaning parameters of milking systems. And we worked from small farms to large farms, and we had a very good relationship with the milk buyers and the processors. And I was able to take information from processors, so milk quality data, you know, standard plate counts, preliminary incubation counts, things of that nature, and directly correlate that to the events that I was seeing on farm that had been recorded as an equipment, malfunction may not be the correct word, but something within a piece of equipment that we were monitoring deviated from a standard. So I was able to, over time, start marrying very real information and data points to say this went wrong and the result was this impact on milk quality. 
then I did that for a few years and then through another change of, of circumstance and um, stumbling into another opportunity, was able to join DeLaval and well, it's almost 10 years now as a milk quality and animal um, health product specialist. Through changes within DeLaval, I started focusing on milk quality in the Southeast US and then that grew to North America. That changed a bit and that led into what is now um, a, a position called Dairy Advisor with DeLaval and with Dairy Advisors, they focus very specifically on how do we help customers utilize our equipment and optimize our equipment to get the performance that they're seeking. So started out with milk quality that's grown into general um, herd and farm management and equipment management. And now I am advising the team itself. Uh, so I don't do as much field work anymore but uh, milk quality is still my heart and soul. So I do get to work on the peripheral on a lot of projects when it does come to milk quality issues. And we work from anything from small herds to large herds, you know, conventional uh, milking systems to robotic milking systems, everything from pasture based to uh, free stalls to dry lots, open lots, um, anything and everything in between. So that's how I got to where I am today. The majority of your career has definitely been focused on milk quality. So I'd like to start out with kind of a bigger question. So what is the definition of milk quality? And that is a big question, to be honest. Uh, the answer is not as simple um, as it seems. And truthfully, the answer is going to be, it depends upon who you're asking that question to. If you're asking a, a consumer, that you know is purchasing dairy products in the store what that definition is most of the time a consumer is going to reply with i want a high quality product that is as high of a quality on the first day as it is on the last day or through that best buy date that may be on the package and for the consumer that means it has consistency of taste consistency of smell um, or texture or things like that is it is somewhat subjective measures but that's how they are going to define what milk quality is the processors the milk buyers are trying to meet that consumer's demand and the processors have adopted measurements more objective measurements on components or other factors of raw milk that can help guide their processing decisions Typically, most are going to use a combination of somatic cell count and bacteria counts of some sort, because we know through science that these numbers are correlated to the quality of the end product that they are manufacturing. So that we know through research that taste acceptance of pasteurized high somatic cell count milk from a consumer is lower than their taste acceptance of low somatic cell count milk. We also know that, you know, bacteria counts and, and somatic cell counts, those things can impact yield, it can impact flavor, it can impact other processing factors. 
So your processor has a definition that is more objective than the consumer, but their definition is driven by what the consumer wants. Then when you turn to the next person in this chain, that's the producer themselves, the, the dairy producer that's making the raw milk. From a producer perspective, their answer to what is milk quality, they're going to probably lean more towards the objective measurements that they need to meet in order to meet their market demand, which was set by the processor. So every producer may have a different answer. And the reason why it may be different from producer to producer is going to be truly based upon how that producer is selling or marketing their milk, who is buying their milk and what are they going to make with that milk? Because there's going to be a difference in quality that is needed for let's say infant formula, than there would be for fluid milk. Uh, there may be a difference in quality needed for a specialty, specialty cheese versus a block cheese. So there's not really one solid answer for what is milk quality. And that's why I, I say it is a big question. And the answer truly is it depends. It depends on who you ask. It depends upon what their perspective is. But I think, you know, for most people with, that would be listening to this podcast, they're either going to be dairy producers and they all have, you know, similar but different needs and or industry people and processors that they also influence the needs of that producer. So that may have been a very long answer to a very short question, uh, but it is, it is a little bit more complicated than just a simple answer. No, absolutely. And I think it's a great way to sort of set the scene here that milk quality, there's a vested interest for everyone involved in the food chain. Um, but for the sake of this podcast, um, today we're going to be focusing more on the dairy producer's perspective. Yep. So, so let's say that a dairy saw a sudden change in milk quality. Where do you begin your investigation? I will begin my investigation in the parlor and in the milk house. Um, for one reason, I do work for a milking equipment company. So that's, that's our uh, bread and butter there. And that is where we are the most responsible. However, for anyone that would be working with the dairy and there was a sudden change in milk quality, I would still say start the investigation in the parlor in the milk house and focus specifically on cleaning and cooling. Typically, when you see a sudden change in a milk quality parameter, it is almost always due to a sudden change or malfunction or a, a difference in how a piece of equipment is performing or how the protocol is being performed. So sudden changes, I say, go straight to the parlor in the milk house. Now, what about a long-term issue? What are some possible culprits and where do you begin looking to find a solution? Cleaning and cooling are what I call fairly, quote, simple, right? In that the equipment is doing what it should be doing or it is not doing what it should be doing. And that may be an oversimplification, but you know, after 20 years of investigating milk quality issues, I find those two factors to be the most straightforward contributors to milk quality and therefore maybe not the easiest, but the most straightforward to overcome. When we're dealing with a long-term issue, these typically are more systemic problems that have either existed for a while or are in development. 
It could be cleaning and cooling related, but I'm hoping that by the point that we've we've entered into what I would call a long-term issue, we've thoroughly investigated cleaning and cooling and those have been cleared and shouldn't be part of the discussion anymore. So once we've cleared those two factors, that's when I step out of the parlor and I step out of that milk house. And that's when I say, I go to the backside of the barn. I go out into the housing. I look at hygiene. I look at comfort. I look at genetics. I look at everything that is basically once I walk out of the milk parlor door and out into the world of the cows, that's where I would start with the long-term issue. So I'd now like to dive into some of the different factors that can potentially have an impact on the quality of milk. So to start off with, how do genetics impact milk quality? It's not a direct one-to-one type of correlation, but it does have an impact. So when we are selecting semen, when we are breeding cows and trying to make a genetic improvement in cows, some of the things that we look for that we use in the traits that we use are herd health traits. You know, what are those herd health traits that we're breeding for? Are we breeding for low somatic cell scores? Um, and, And probably one of the bigger ones really is what are we breeding for? What is our breeding program for udder and teat confirmation? I think as an industry, we can all agree that we've somewhat gone to extremes from one extreme of cows that would have, I would call splayed out teats. So poor teat placement where their teats are pointing outwards to the opposite extreme that I call, I would call it high and tight. So teats that are placed high up in that utter cleft that may be crossed or little to no space in between um, teats from side to side. The challenge is those teats also create a challenge, just as much challenge as the splayed out teats, just differently. When you have teats that are too close together or high up in that utter cleft, now we don't have actual physical space or room for the head of liners to sit properly. What that can lead to are potential liner slip issues or incomplete milkings. We're not actually making good contact with the teat and we're not milking out teats well or, or quarters well. So liner slips and incomplete milkings can lead to potential contamination issues that can lead to increased risk for mastitis as well. So it's, even though I'm not directly impacting bacteria counts or somatic cell count based upon a genetic selection trait, it does have a driving influence on it. Absolutely. Now, earlier you had mentioned hygiene. How do you measure hygiene exactly? Do you start with the equipment and the milk filters or do you start with the cows? Theoretically, you could start wherever you would like. Um, It's almost a, it's a domino effect. If I walk into a parlor and the equipment is really dirty, most likely I can go look at the filters and they're going to be really dirty, which most likely means that I can go look at cows and cows are going to be really dirty. So it is that domino effect. So, At the end of the discussion, it always comes back to the cow. The cow is what is bringing in the dirt, manure, debris into the parlor itself where we're harvesting the milk. So I tend to go back to the cow and say, what is the condition of the hygiene of the herd, of these cows? 
because when I get that cow into the parlor, there's only so much a person, a person that is milking or a robot can actually do to clean a dirty teat. So if I can improve the hygiene of the cow, then that automatically starts improving the milking hygiene in the parlor itself. Well, that leads right into my next question. So you're following the cow from the parlor um, back to the free stalls. What exactly are you looking for and what do you suggest um, for improvement? So the first thing I do is I probably, you know, climb a fence and just sit there for a few hours and watch cows and see what are cows doing? Where are cows spending their time? How are they utilizing whatever housing facilities that they are in? And what are the conditions of that location? So if I know we have dirty cows, then what I'm going to look for is where are these cows getting so dirty and why are they getting so dirty? Is there a place that holds water that cows have to walk through and it splashes manure around? Is that a, is that a concern? Or are cows laying in dirty environments? If it's a freestall barn, are they laying in the freestall? Are they laying correctly? Or is the freestall itself very dirty? Or are cows not laying in freestalls and they're laying where we don't want them to lay in alleyways or in feed lanes? So I really look and see where are cows spending their time and how are they spending their time? And how is all of that connected with how dirty these cows actually are? Absolutely. And we know cows spend the majority of their times in the back of the barn. And cow cooling is something that is clearly near and dear to our hearts at VESR Techs. Um, so I'd like to know what role ventilation and heat abatement strategies play in the role of milk quality. A lot of that depends upon the method at which you are using heat abatement. Different parts of the country use different strategies. And those strategies are typically driven by the climate of the area. So for instance, I live in the Southeast US and in the Southeast US, it is very hot and very humid. We have a different heat abatement strategy than let's say the Southwest US that is also very hot, but very dry. So those may be two different strategies and you would not use a cooling strategy from the South East U.S. in the Southwest U.S. and be successful at that. One, you probably wouldn't be successful at actually heat abatement. But secondly, the method of which your, your cooling cows can impact things. So let's talk about using water to cool cows, for instance. When you use water and you're, let's say, sprinkling the back of cows to help with the evaporative cooling effect. If you apply too much water, then that water can actually run down the sides of the cow's body and onto the udder. And then when you're in the milking house or in the parlor, that water can continue to collect on the head of a liner. And if you have a liner slip, we call it magic water because it was there and suddenly it's not. And it's not there anymore because now it's we just harvested it into the milking system. So that timing of how much water 
on versus off and how much, you know, wind speed and ventilation you have in the barn. All of that works together to make sure that one, you are cooling cows. But secondly, that you are not also creating a milk quality impact and creating conditions that are going to increase the likelihood of contamination in the milk parlor. Well, it's definitely a a fine line of making sure your cows are comfortable, but doing it in a way that's maybe not doing more harm than good. Correct. Absolutely. So something that may not come to the forefront of someone's mind when troubleshooting milk quality issues is nutrition. How do you suggest someone looks at this and how do they evaluate how their cows are eating to see its effect in the bulk tank? So when it comes to nutrition, again, this isn't always a direct correlation into milk quality, but I think we can all agree that if our nutrition strategies are not correct or are off, that we can create metabolic distress for cows and that impacts their immune system or their immune stress load. If we have unhealthy cows, then unhealthy cows are more likely to be susceptible to mastitis and other diseases. So that's one way that that nutrition can impact milk quality because we can actually impact immune status of the of the udder itself. But the other thing is, you know, the feed management and and the actual nutrition, the the ration management. So in feed management, when you are in a conventional barn, you know, one of the the golden rules of mastitis prevention is when a cow leaves the parlor, we want her standing for at least 30 minutes to allow that sphincter muscle on the teat end to close. One of the best ways to entice cows to continue to stand for another 30 minutes after they've been in the holding pen and in the parlor is to offer them fresh feed or freshly pushed up feed. So just a feed management of when you time the feeding with when cows come back from the parlor, that can have an impact on milk quality, on mastitis. But the other thing in in robotic barns, kind of another strategy on feed management is the timing and how you are placing feed out also drives traffic, like where cows go and when they go within a barn. So whether you have a free flow barn, or you have a fully guided barn, if the feed wagon starts up and all the cows jump up to run to the feed bunk, then that's a pretty good sign to me that our feed management and feed timing needs to be adjusted because we want cows to flow on a continuous basis rather than move as if they are in a conventional barn. So feed management is going to help drive traffic, which also helps disperse some of that manure and not have high concentrations of manure in a robotic barn. But then another part of nutrition is just simply looking at not just what goes into the cow, so what she's consuming, but what's coming out of the cow and looking at manure scores. So I can look at manure scores and determine is this manure very loose or is it very solid and very firm? If you have very loose manure, then you are going to have more splash. You're going to have more liquidy forms of manure. And that presence in itself is going to increase the hygiene scores of cows. They're just naturally 
going to be dirtier because as they walk through the barn, they're splashing looser manure around. So there's a balance on the manure score on how much firmness, let's say, you would want versus how much looseness. And that is directly impacted by what's going into the cow's mouth and what she is consuming. That's so interesting. I I honestly have never thought about manure scores and it all really is related. That's so interesting. If you've ever stood in a robotic barn that has an automated scraper system and there is a tsunami of manure moving down the alley, you see very quickly how liquidy manure can impact the splash factor. I've had boots that uh, weren't tall enough and had manure basically spill into my boots before. So those are just small things that can have a major impact. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's look more at DeLaval's bread and butter milking equipment. What services do you recommend are performed on equipment to ensure that they are maintaining proper udder health? So first, um, we hope that the system is properly designed and installed properly, set up properly. But the biggest factor is going to be maintenance. Is the equipment, whether we're talking conventional milking systems, whether that's parlors, rotaries, um, or we're talking robotics, all of those milking systems need to be properly maintained. So that means changing the rubber goods when they need to be changed, you know, changing hoses when they need to be changed, making sure that the uh, proper measurements are being taken on vacuum and pulsation and that those are optimized for the cows and for the system. So once we get the systems in up and going, there should be a set scheduled maintenance. Typically those are, are determined by hours of use. So how many hours this pump has been running, how many hours this system has been running. And then when it comes to, let's say liners in particular, those would be based upon the number of milkings that that particular liner has done over its lifetime. So if the system is properly designed, installed, set up, maintained, and operated correctly, it should not contribute to poor udder health. And you should not see a degradation of milk quality from the time we've removed the milk from the cow to when we've delivered it into the bulk tank. The other things about the systems that are important and what we can do from an equipment side is making sure that we can clean them and sanitize them easily. Making sure that we have the right knowledge and the right people in place that can easily repair issues if they do fail. So while milking equipment itself does not drive milk quality, it can have a, an impact. So if we are, if we have the system set up for aggressive milking, I call it, uh, where we've got a higher vacuum level, we're milking out very fast, um, faster pulsation uh, ratios, that would be more on the aggressive side. Aggressive milking can, can impact teat health. So if we have impact in teat health, that can impact somatic cell count, that can impact contamination factors. So we can set the equipment too far on an extreme and impact, but if it is properly set up and maintained and operated, then it should not have an impact on those things. 
Absolutely. And most cows are milked by people. Um, obviously, there are um, some cows that are milked by robots. So having proper procedures is key. What protocols do you recommend or teach in the parlor? So every parlor is a little different. The goal of any protocol or procedure that you're going to follow in the parlor is when that teat cup is ready to go onto the teat. Is the teat clean? Is it dry? And is it well stimulated? Those are the three major objectives. And if it's clean, dry, and stimulated, then we're ready to milk cows and we are ready to minimize any impact, negative impact on milk quality. To get to clean, dry, and well-stimulated, there's a lot of different procedures that are followed. No one procedure I have found can I place in every single parlor that I work with. Some will you know, say that you have to use all of the, the basic procedures. So dip, strip, wipe, attach, remove the unit manually or with automated takeoff systems when the cow is done milking, and then post-dip. That's kind of the gold standard of milking procedures. But there are a lot of places in the world that they don't use pre-dip, but they still do a very good job and they have you know, very high milk quality. We have some places, you know, even in North America that do not force strip cows, but yet they still have very good stimulated cows that are ready to be milked and are clean and dry. And they still have high milk quality. So there's no cookie cutter answer to what procedures need to be followed. I think at the end of the day, Every farm needs to decide what procedures, number one, that they know can be followed consistently, milking after milking after milking. And then what do each one of those procedures, what's the value of those procedures? Are we weighing for stripping against having to hire another person to actually do that job? Is that a return on investment? So every farm has to look at this individually and say, know what the gold standard is, and then determine within that gold standard, what can work best for them. And most farms that I've worked with, we, we try something and we see what we monitor the impact to see, is this having a positive or negative impact? And we keep tweaking and we keep tweaking until we have found what that farm considers to be their optimal balance of what are the milking procedures I can follow consistently and what is the expected milk quality I can get from those procedures. Absolutely. There are so many different factors and ways that you can really get to that end goal of that clean, dry teat. Absolutely. Um, and oftentimes there are so many different parties that are involved that have a different end goal on the dairy. How do you all work together to find a solution um, when you're working with an issue that is impacting the quality of the milk? So this isn't always cut and dry either. Um, it's sometimes hard to convince someone that doesn't work in milk quality that I need for them to come to the table and have a conversation about milk quality. I think it's important that everyone regardless of what your role is on the dairy from a consulting perspective, 
it's important that everyone realize that we all play a role in helping our mutual customer client achieve their farm goals. I've invited many nutritionists to meetings that were about milk quality. When they walk in, they're confused as to why am I even here? I'm a nutritionist. I don't do milk quality. But by the time they leave, they know, okay, this is the role that I play in milk quality. And just the same from my perspective, you know, I work for a milking equipment and harvesting company. I don't balance rations, but if the nutritionist or the veterinarian sees an impact, they may think it has something to do with parlor settings and it may, or it may not. So making sure that we are very open and honest and transparent with each other as to this is my role and this is what I know. And this is how you impact me. This is how I impact you. At the end of the day, we all serve the same customer. We all serve the same client. And we all want that person to be successful. So just sitting down and having these conversations and talking about how we impact each other is truly the first step. And once, typically, once we make that first step and we, make, we start making those connections in between our respective fields, then it becomes much easier because we all realize this is all interconnected. And the, the easiest example that I can, can give to people to help you know, wrap your mind on why it's more of a holistic approach is understanding how nutrition has an impact on overall cow health. Imagine if the veterinarian and the nutritionist on a farm never spoke or never talked to each other. So the veterinarian is fighting a disease or a, a disorder that may be nutritionally caused. If he never talks to the nutritionist, the nutritionist may or may not know that that disorder exists and that they need to change things nutritionally. So that's already a, a connection in the back of the barn that's happening. Now we just need to make sure that the people that work the front end of the barn are also connecting with the people in the back end of the barn. Absolutely. That transparency is so key. So when you're on a dairy and you're investigating an issue and you found there's quite a bit of areas for improvement, where do you recommend that someone even starts? Sometimes it seems a little overwhelming. Um, so what do you recommend? It is overwhelming. Um, I have been doing this for over 20 years now. And the first rule of, of how I approach investigations is we cannot get perfection on anything. Everything is a balancing act. You may be able to, on a farm, make great strides in one area because it's least expensive or it's the highest impact or it's the easiest to implement. But there is another area of the farm that none of those things are true. So I would not spend my time in that area knowing that it's going to be extremely expensive. It's going to be very difficult and it may have a lower impact. So understanding and being able to sort through each of these areas and place what I call risk assessments to each of those areas. If we have an, a cow hygiene issue, and I go into the back of the barn and I see that our free stalls are not sized or designed well for the cows that we have today. But putting in all new free stalls may not be in short term 
vision for the farm, but can we improve bedding? Can we, you know, maybe make an adjustment to the freestall? Can we apply bedding more often? Can we scrape more often? So it's, it's a matter of no, how a particular component falls in risk assessment and then what you can actually change about it. So it is very overwhelming because you can't just walk out and say, oh, cows are dirty. Get your cows cleaner and that will fix your problem. It's, it's more nuanced than that. So being willing to really take time to make the appropriate observations and understanding how all of these things are interconnected is probably the one thing that I would stress more than anything. There's not one place that I would just go to immediately on every farm and say, start here. I think it's a matter of you have to take a 30,000 foot level view to get an overall idea of how the system as a farm system is working and decide where are the weak points of that individual farm. And then of those weak points, which are the most easy to change, the least expensive and or the highest impact, and then go from there. For sure. I definitely think not everyone has the ability to just completely rebuild a barn. Um, So those are some really good tangible tips that are also low cost as well. There's a lot a lot of areas you can improve for little money and have a big impact. Correct. Correct. So at the end of each podcast episode, I've been asking our guests the same question. So now it's your turn. So <laughs> no, it's an easy one. I promise. Okay. Um, I'd like to know what does an animal centered environment mean to you? An animal centered environment is one that puts that animal's needs above other decisions. Is she comfortable? Is she healthy? Is she able to walk freely within the barn, access feed when she needs or wants it? Those are the things that I think of when I think animal centric. What are we doing to make her life the best possible life that it can be to keep her happy, healthy, productive, and keep her around for a long time? Thanks again, Christy, for your time and insights. It's clear that cow comfort, bedding management, ventilation, nutrition, employee protocols, and much more all play a role in milk quality, and it's our job to continue to improve. So thanks again, everyone, for tuning in, and we will catch you in our next episode. Thank you for joining us for another Dairy Intelligent episode. We hope you have found some suggestions to improve cow comfort on your farm, or simply just learn something new. If you have not already, please be sure to subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast platform and let your friends know about us. We would love to have them listen and learn.